0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, with shrinking LRT projects coming to Mississauga and Brampton to cut costs, could Hamilton's LRT plan be impacted? The government of Ontario has announced changes to the autism program, and also, the White House is rejecting the Democratic proposal to release any information relating to the Trump Putin talks. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today, on the Bill Kelly Show, on 900 CHML. Well, when it comes to the LRT project, look, we've got some serious concerns. And as you've heard on CHML News over the last couple of hours, uh, there's a, a change in a bit of a, 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 a audible call, I guess, when it comes to the LRT project in Mississauga, uh, where Metrolinx, who is in, supposedly in charge of uh, intercity uh, public transit, has decided to scale back the Mississauga LRT project based on what they called budget pressures. Now, uh, is that instructive for us? Is that a harbinger of things to come? Because we know that next week, uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger is meeting with the Transport Minister Jeff T- Chir- York, and uh, supposed to be coming to town here. Now, th- there's nothing about an announcement coming, but they've done this with Mississauga. Apparently, the Premier's in Ottawa today to talk about that LRT project. And then, of course, next week, the Minister's here in Hamilton. Can we anticipate that we're going to be asked to scale back the LRT project? And if so, how does the community react? How does council react to something like that? Let's bring Ryan McGreal, editor of Raise the Hammer, into the discussion and uh, try to get some perspective on this. How are you doing this morning, Ryan?
1: I'm good, Bill. How are you
0: doing? Good. I, I was very upset to hear what happened in Mississauga, and, and uh, I, I, you and I have talked about this in the past. I, I, I know the Premier said, yeah, well, we promised you the money, the money's going to be there. I, I'm not so sure. I'm, I'm, I'm a little nervous about what might happen next week.
1: Oh, uh, for sure. Now, now, to be clear, uh, the Mississauga um, situation, it's, it's not as, as bad as it may seem at first blush um the the total route is still going to be the same they're sort of simplifying the way it interacts with the um Scarborough town or the sorry the uh, mississauga town center and the MyWay um bus rapid transit connection uh and they're removing a pedestrian overpass and they're they're sort of downscaling some of the uh streetscaping that's going to be happening along the corridor but they're not actually reducing the length of the line so they're you know they're looking at, at sort of ways to uh, I guess find some savings in how the line is built without actually reducing the line. So it's it's not as like, it's not like they're saying well it's only going to go you know 12 kilometers instead of 14 kilometers. So it's it's not as bad a news story as as it kind of seems right away. But uh, certainly, um, you know, the other thing of course is that the the Mississauga project is sort of at a slightly different stage in development as the Hamiltons. Like ours, the RFP has already gone out to tender. You know, so we're we're theoretically farther along on that process.
0: Theoretically, we are, but I mean, the cap and trade program was under underway too, and they just nixed that. I mean, these guys, when they start swinging the axe here, you're not quite sure where it's going to go, and they really don't seem to care a whole lot about the ramifications. Uh, and the bottom line is, I understand what they've done with the, the modifications they've done, but the, it just seemed as if the modus operandi here was just is to cut the cost of it, it's to save money. Uh, and I, I'm I don't know if you heard the conversation I had with Mayor Eisenberger last week. Uh, when it was announced that he was going to be meeting with the Transportation Minister. But even at that time, the mayor suggested, look, we may have to uh, do some uh, some alterations, I think he was the word he used, uh, to the project here to try to bring it under cost. So I don't know if I've already had preliminary discussions about this, but it kind of sounds as if something's going to happen here.
1: Well, it, it wouldn't particularly surprise me. I mean, the problem is when the when the budget was announced for Hamilton's LRT project, that was five, four or five years ago now. You know, and so we have been stalling and delaying and spinning our wheels and hitting the pause button over and over and over again. Uh, well, I mean, inflation is a couple of percent a year, so uh, you know, a billion dollars in twenty fourteen twenty fifteen is not a billion dollars in twenty twenty, which is uh, realistically the earliest this project could kind of break ground at this point. Uh, last year, uh, apropos of nothing, the uh, provincial government. Uh, suspended land purchases for the uh, the Hamilton LRT project and apparently suspended the RFP process as well, although it's hard to get a straight answer out of that. So again, there's more delays. The longer we wait, the more this thing is going to cost. And that's just a, a basic reality of, of, of how market economics works. So, um, you know, some of that is on is at the feet of council. You know, council introduced a lot of delays, um, you know, almost a year's worth of delays, over one kind of little shenanigan after another, you know, after the funding was announced, uh, now the ball is in the province's court and really ultimately they have total power. They could cancel the project completely. They could scale it back. You know, they could add more to it if they wanted to, although I don't think that's likely, yeah, I
0: don't, I think that's off the table,
1: <laughs> you know, but the, I mean, the, 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 arrangement between the city and Metrolinx has always been that Metrolinx has the power to scale back the project in order to stay within the budget. So, um, you know, certainly it wouldn't surprise me if Metrolinx comes back and says, look, a billion dollars is only going to pay for this much. So we have to remove a few of the furrows from this in order to keep the project on scope. And if they do that, you know, that's kind of they've got the first strings. They have the power. If council decides that we want to spend some extra money of our own to re-add in some of those things, if we see value, that is a conversation that the city could have.
0: But Well, and I'm a little nervous about that, because you remember the, the, the discussion points back when this debate was uh, still going back, but this was the previous council, of course. Uh, and and the the common theme from the wolves who were on the fence, or were even opposed to this, said not one single dime of taxpayers' money. Uh, we're not going to do this. And I don't you know if you heard Councillor Whitehead on Scott Radley's show last night here on CHML, where he said if they're going to do that, if they're going to scale this thing back, he says that's a deal breaker. Now, that, I'm sure he's speaking for himself and not for the other councillors, but... You and I both know that the support for this project on council is tenuous at best. For some of those councillors, and some of them may be looking for a way out.
1: Well, sure, and and changing the scope of the project gives councillors who would rather not have a transformative investment in Hamilton, it gives them an excuse to to change their vote or to assert their vote more more strongly. I mean, this is a political game, yeah. And uh, you know, I mean, politicians, um, you know, what's the saying? Never let a good crisis go to waste. You know so i i expect that any any sort of uh although you know in fairness again from a procedural point of view and, and this may be a little bit nitpicky and nuanced but they, that's kind of the way I think um we actually agreed with Metrolinks that they will control the project and that they'll control the scope of the project and that they have the right to scale back the project in order to fit the budget so it it i mean in terms of what council has voted for, it actually wouldn't be a change for Metro to come back and saying you know, uh, further to our memorandum of, under- of understanding with the city, we're making these changes in order to make sure that the budget doesn't get exceeded. Um, however, um, you know, as we know, nuance gets is the first thing to get thrown away when politicians want a grandstand. So I don't expect a lot of people will be paying attention to that.
0: With that in mind, though, and let- let's assume that maybe that is the mindset right now. And, and as I say, the-, the comments that the mayor made to me last week, and, and this story from Mississauga, indicate that I I would think at least the the thing that we can probably all agree on here is that look our our, our project is probably under the microscope right now for Metrolinks and, and probably by the direction of the provincial government to say, look at find some efficiencies here. And and you know, you mentioned the, the term frills a little while. I'm not so sure there are too many frills in this design for Hamilton, are there?
1: No, I I mean there's nothing that really obviously jumps out at me. Um, You know, I can think of, like, for example, the the Longwood Road overpass over the 403 is set to be replaced in order to uh, um, be able to have a spur line that runs out to the planned uh, maintenance and storage facility, which will be kind of in behind McMaster Innovation Park. I mean, maybe they they can look at doing some, um, some value engineering to save a little bit of money there. I'm really, I mean, I'm not an engineer. So in terms of line by line, I'm not too sure how much fat there is to cut. This was, you know, sort of intended to be. a uh, a fairly lean project to begin with but at the same time a billion dollars is actually a lot of money when you consider the distance like you know if if you look at what what they do in Europe when they build a line you know they could build a 14 kilometer line for you know maybe a little more than half of what we're planning to spend so there may be still opportunities to find a more economical way to do this you know it just we'll have to wait and see what Metrolinx comes up with.
0: Is it a factor in your mind Ryan the fact that uh, the the government representative from this area is not on side with this project?
1: It certainly doesn't help. I mean, the, the sense I get, um, you know, it's kind of from, you know, it's kind of people I know who have connections to the, the parties is that um, uh, MPP Skelly doesn't necessarily have the premier's ear on this file, uh, which is, you know, I guess uh, a good thing in so far as, you know, she's not going to be advocating for what's good for the city and what's good for the region. Um, she's going to be advocating against it. So the less influence that she has, you know, at least in this particular case, the better.
0: And and again, obviously, she's the one that that we're told set up this meeting with the the transportation minister. So I'm assuming that she's going to be involved in this in some way, shape, or form. Uh, is sure. is is the minister coming here to give us this announcement, or is he just coming to, as mayor had hoped anyway, to just get the lay of the land? I think they pretty much know that, don't they?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I guess it'll be an opportunity for the for the mayor to kind of take the temperature of. Uh, of this cabinet, you know, through the the transport minister and figure out, you know, what do they really have an appetite for? I mean, we heard some encouraging noises from Premier Ford after the last municipal election where he came to Hamilton and said, look, um, you know, the guy who supports an LRT, you know, won handily, you know, you wanted an LRT, you're going to get an LRT. Uh, I hope that that sentiment, it continues to be kind of what drives the province, but it's really so hard to tell with this government, Um, you know, it's pretty chaotic. Uh, they they kind of do things on a meteoric basis, as we can see in a lot of different files. So it really, it could go any direction.
0: And uh, I guess there there are two elements that I guess we need to be concerned about here. One obviously is whatever the province is going to say or do about this, and it may not even happen next week. Uh, but just as I say, since the Mississauga thing occurred this week, and and apparently the, the, the premier's in Ottawa, he says to talk to Mayor Watson up there about the LRT project. I, I doubt very much they're going to throw more money at it, but you know. I, you know, sit here remaining, you know, waited to be surprised and amazed if we could. But it just seems as if this is the the third part of this wheel here to see what's going to happen here in Hamilton. Uh, But more importantly, I guess, as you've just mentioned, the bigger concern here is how is City Council going to respond to this?
1: Right, because if you look at the case of Ottawa, um, you know, due to various different, um, you know, issues, the total cost for their Phase two LRT is going to be something like a billion dollars higher than they originally estimated that was going to be. Uh, Their council uh, voted to proceed with the plan anyway, because, you know, unlike um, too many members of our council, they actually recognize the overall overarching value to their community of making this kind of investment. They're like, look, it's going to be more expensive. It's still worth it. If we have to kick in a bit more of our own money to make it happen, we're prepared to do that because we see the value. We see the return on the investment. In Hamilton, where we're not contributing a single red cent toward the capital cost of our LRT system, uh, it's a little more dispiriting and a little bit more discouraging that our council doesn't have that vision where they can't actually see that investing in high-quality rapid transit is good for your community.
0: Well, and again, based on some of the comments I've heard from the councillors, some off the record, some on, uh, I, I still get the sense, and it bothers me that I get this sense, that, that, that they're looking for an excuse to bail out of this thing.
1: Oh, sure. I mean, it, you know, I find mo- you know the vast majority of the time these councillors operate based on fear. You know, and it's usually fear of missing in rather than fear of missing out. You know, the status quo has worked very well for these councillors, many of whom have been in power for decades. And, uh, you know, frankly, you know, any kind of a significant change that would put the city on a different trajectory creates uncertainty and instability for them personally. And, uh, you know, the status quo hasn't been working very well for the whole city. It's been working very well for the people who've been sitting in charge of it for the last several decades.
0: Maybe we will be pleasantly surprised next week. I sure hope so. (laughs) So do I. Ryan, thanks so much for this. Appreciate your time today. Have a good weekend.
1: Likewise. Thanks, for uh, for inviting me on.
0: You betcha. Ryan McGreal, of course, editor of Raise the Hammer. Uh, and we'll see, as we said, uh, next week the minister's here in town to talk to Mayor Eisenberger and uh, maybe it's good news. I don't know, just that the, the way things have developed the last couple of days, it's, uh, it's looking a little shaky right now.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: The uh, provincial government's taking another run at their autism program. You may remember a few weeks ago, uh, Lisa McLeod, the minister in charge, rolled out uh, what they said were uh, improvements. Oh, I prefer to call them simply changes to the uh, autism program, uh, there was an immediate pushback from all sorts of people. And uh, that particular day, you may remember, I had the uh, the minister on the program uh, as she was trying to defend some of the uh, things that they were trying to propose. And she was insistent that, look, there's only a limited amount of money, and she wants to make sure that it was spread out over a whole lot of people, uh, which maybe sounds quite noble to try to eliminate some of the wait lists, but it uh, is not addressing the needs of actually people that are living with autism and the families that are dealing with it. So they came back yesterday and said, well, we're going to change a few things. And uh, I'm not so sure that they've uh, even hit this one out of the park either. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Dr. Mike P. Moffitt, who's an assistant professor, business economics and public policy group at the Ivy School of Business at Western University, and also, of course, the, uh, the parent of a child living with autism. Uh, Mike, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming back on today.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: Let's uh, first of all get your read on what the minister said yesterday with their improvements to the plan.
2: Well, uh, strangely enough, uh, we have more unanswered questions I think now than we uh, did before the announcement. So what the minister's basically come back with is saying that they're hitting pause for six months. The uh, kids currently receiving uh, treatment will continue to receive treatment for the next six months. And during that period, uh, they're going to work, uh, they say they're going to work with parents and, and other groups to, to try and uh, address uh, or try and come up with a policy that addresses need. We really don't know what that looks like or what the government has in mind, but uh, you know, we're, we're happy that they're at least uh, acknowledging that there was a problem with the uh, old proposal.
0: You know, the, t- the first thing I noticed yesterday was that with the day I, the, they rolled this out and I had the minister on the program, she was insistent. she said, look, that's all the money we've got. I've got other things and other priorities within my portfolio, and I can't do this. This is what we're going to do. We're going to try to make the best of it. And, of course, yesterday she says uh, we're at $331 million right now, and we're prepared to go even further. So as, as I told her that day, you can find the money if you want to. The, it's the governments themselves that set these these uh, these limits. I mean, they're the ones that decide how much money is going to go into each program, and clearly, uh, they missed the mark with these announcements.
2: They did, yeah. So they, they certainly could find more money, but but I, I would say that the problem with the old proposal wasn't so much the amount of money that they were spending, but they were spending it particularly poorly because they weren't considering needs. Uh, so you had a lot of kids that would actually get more money, more support than they needed. They, uh, you know, they have very little needs, maybe need a little spe- speech therapy or something like that. And they were getting thousands and thousands of dollars for something that would only cost a few hundred. On the other hand, uh, kids uh, with higher needs uh, weren't receiving the the funding that they needed. So that was a big problem here. It wasn't so much that the government wasn't spending enough money, but they were doing it poorly. They were doing it really inefficiently, and that's what parent groups were coming back to, to home saying was basically, yeah, we'd like more money, but that's not what we're asking for. We just want you to spend you know however much money you're going to spend, it, spend it in the most efficient way possible, uh, so we can help as many kids as possible.
0: Well, and and I asked. You- that too. And I said, just why, why would you not a, a embrace a, a needs-based uh, funding formula? And they just they, they said that's not fair. And I think it's the most fair thing of all. In other words, if, if there is a limited amount of money, and let's face it, even if they've increased it, you can't solve any problem simply by throwing money at it. It's, as you mentioned, Mike, how you spend this. Uh, and they, they don't seem to want to hear that, because I know that a number of groups have told them that and said, please, listen to us. This is the best way to do the system. And and even the people, as you say, that may be higher on the spectrum are saying, "Look, at I don't need ten thousand dollars a year. I mean, that's that's not. There's other people that need it more. Uh, As you mentioned, it might be a couple of hundred bucks for one family. It might be seventy thousand bucks for another family. But they're still going to get ten thousand dollars."
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I I can speak to that firsthand. That uh, I have a daughter who's going to turn eight in May. She would have got far more money than she needed uh, under, under the uh, the the old uh, proposal. You know, she needs a little a bit of speech therapy. Uh, you know, a little bit of therapy around anxiety. But she's you know she's pretty good. So it doesn't make sense to give kids like my daughter five thousand dollars. So I was one of those parents saying like, hold on, this this doesn't make any, any sense. Uh, you know, we we you know we don't want you going out and buying a second iPad, uh, you know, for these kids. So, you know, this is a step in the right direction. But again, there's going to be a, a negotiation here over the next six months where we're going to try and work with this government to come up with something that's not just good for kids, but again, good, good for taxpayers as well. You know, you've got a government that's trying to, to balance the books. They can't afford to be uh, wasting money on unnecessary therapy.
0: Mike, why the reticence to, to, to take that kind of advice? It's, it's not as if they have to do the assessments. More often than not, that's already there. In other words, you, you know your, your daughter's status. Most other families are living with this understand where they are. And, and if, if it's going to be a needs-based thing, they can simply say, look, at it, here's the therapy that's needed here. Here's the price tag for it. Let's, let's work from that standpoint. But they, they still seem to, to go back to this one-size-fits-all formula.
2: Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm puzzled, uh, to be honest, where parents are trying to figure out why uh, they were so insistent on this. You know, I think they just developed uh, this model. They they truly believed in the, this model and didn't do those consultations up front. I think they were, you know, saw this as an issue where the previous government had all kinds of problems. You know, the, the, the past model wasn't perfect. So, you know, they were going to come in on, you know, night on the white horse and, and, and try and fix this. But, you know, again, I think they, they misjudged uh, the issues and again kind of had this ideological idea of fairness which meant that, again, everybody should receive basically the same size check. But that's 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 not uh, that's not what we want, and that's not how you deal with it with healthcare. care. You don't, you know, when people go to the hospital, you assess their needs, and, you know, some people might need a couple aspirins and a Band-Aid, and someone might need serious surgery, and you deal with those issues separately, not just send everybody home with the same size check.
0: Mike, one of the other contentious issues, and that's, this is going way back to even the previous government when they were trying to wrestle with this, uh, and, and your point's well taken, this is not a new issue, uh, w- was the age cutoff, and, and which which I know bothered an awful lot of families, especially those that are dealing with rather severe cases, is that uh, you know it, when the funding goes away, the autism doesn't go away, and 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 if, if that's needed, why why are there not resources available for people beyond a certain age?
2: Yeah, and that was a big problem uh, with the old plan, um, and you know the government's still talking about these age caps that uh, after uh, six years old. Uh, the, the, the funding would decrease. That's, yeah, that's problematic, you know, because you, you do have some kids that, you know, they don't all of a sudden have lesser needs at six. Those needs continue. But it's also a problem because it discriminates against girls. Girls tend to get diagnosed much later than boys. Their, their symptoms kind of show up later. So, if you're, you're developing a system that basically gives funding or gives therapy based on the age a child is diagnosed, girls are going to get a lot less support than boys, even if they have sort of the same severity. So, that was Another issue we're talking about, saying like, look, you know, this is this issue has a gender component. It also has other components that uh, kids in rural areas, just because the, uh, the you know the medical system isn't uh, as comprehensive there tend to get diagnosed later than kids living in, in Toronto or Ottawa. So you had all of this, you know, discrimination that was going on uh, simply because of the, the gender or where the child lived. And we we're saying, well, no, that's not fair. What we should be basing this on is the needs of the child, you know, not whether or not the child's a girl or boy or if they live in an urban area or rural area. You know, let's do what we can for these kids.
0: Well, one of the frustrations, and I, I remember talking to families here in, in my studio a couple of years ago about this. Uh, that they And you just touched on something. The, the, the symptoms may show up later. Uh, and if they're higher functioning, oftentimes they're misdiagnosed anyway. But with this formula that the government's proposing here, it's like the clock is ticking. Uh, you know, if, they, if they're diagnosed with something else or maybe a, a learning disability or some other problem, then uh, no, 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 we, we, it, it is autism. It, it, if it's too late, it's too late. You don't qualify
2: yeah that that's just it that. we are we're, we're quite worried about that uh again with this formula, but also you know, how the kids how the government's going to deal with the kids who are currently. Uh, waiting for therapy, you know they 're talking about uh, you know getting rid of the old wait list and now just trying to sort of triage based on age and again, a lot of parents are saying well look that 's not entirely uh, uh, appropriate because you have kids who are over the age of six, it might be seven or eight, their symptoms showed up later, or maybe they lived in a rural area didn 't have that kind of access to health care, and now they 're not going to get the the help they need so Yeah, I I absolutely agree that, you know, you've got this real, this government is really focused on age, just as the previous government was. And parents have been saying for, you know, 15 years, we said it to Dalton McGinty, we said it to Kathleen Wynne, and now we're saying it to Doug Ford, you know, that they, they need to lose this preoccupation with age. You know, you need to focus more on need.
0: Well, let me ask you something, Mike. Since you've been involved in this for quite some time, why is the government, and it's not just this government, as you said, but the previous one as well, that seems to think that age is a factor? Because I've not talked to anybody that's working with families with autism, whether it's a therapist, and we've talked with them, uh, whether it's a doctor who's making the diagnosis. None of them have ever brought age into this as, as a as a consideration, yet the government always seems to hang their hat on this.
2: Yeah, we're we're puzzled by that as well because if you look at uh, other jurisdictions like Alberta, uh, you know they have more of a needs-based uh, system. They don't focus on age. So you know you almost wonder if this is coming from the civil service. You know we have uh, you know different politicians. We've had liberals before, conservatives now, but the you know, you know the bureaucrats don't change. It's the same with the same ones uh, working in the ministry. So you know you do have to wonder if they're sort of driving this agenda. And you you get you know we seem to get a new minister every couple years who gets briefed by the same uh, by the same bureaucrat so you know we're kind of wondering how much is this is driven from the ministry and not so much from the politicians well I'm wondering
0: too if, if this is simply a matter of trying to make a simple a system that's simple for them to, to be able to administer uh, as opposed to what you know as we talked about needs based which is maybe a little more scientific uh, and maybe takes a little more effort but by the same token it's going to be a far more efficient system uh, I'm hoping that as you say, what they hit and they hit the pause button on this for a few months. That they actually do sit down and talk with families like yourselves and the MacIntoshes and others that we've talked with here. That have simply said, "You got it wrong." And it's not as if, well, okay, what are your ideas? You've already presented them with alternative ideas.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, and that's been a big frustration of families that have it's felt that for years that these programs have been designed to make life easier for bureaucrats, not make life easier for families. And that was one of the big issues we've we've had this year that the government was trying to hit this April first deadline that they simply weren't prepared for. And the only reason they wanted the April first was it's the beginning of the new fiscal year. You know, they basically wanted to make life easier for the accountants by starting a new program at the beginning of their fiscal year. Where it's like, hold on, you know what? What are we Trying to accomplish as a province, I don't think we should be, you know, putting the needs of government accountants over the needs of kids. You know, if we have to pause six months, uh, and if that makes the accounting a little bit more difficult, you know, they're professionals; they'll 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 figure this out. So, I absolutely agree. I think for for far too long, you know, we've been designing these programs to make life easier for bureaucrats and not make life easier for families.
0: Who should they talk to? Uh, If I'm taking the minister to word that she does want to consult and, 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 and listen and get some ideas on this, who should be around that table?
2: So, so few. So, obviously, you you need the service providers because they're going to be you know the ones uh, providing these services. So they'll have insights. Parent groups uh, like the MacIntoshes and the uh, Ontario Autism Coalition. But as well, I, I think we need to start looking at best practices from other jurisdictions. You know, that's something that the Premier talks about in a number of other con- um, contexts. I think we need to do it here. So again, Alberta has a fantastic program. Even the United States tends to be uh, further ahead on on this uh than us. You know, 48 of the 50 US states actually require uh autism funding to be a part of their private insurance. So if you have hell if you have health insurance or a private provider there are minimum limits that they have to uh, provide that i think something worth looking at you know maybe you know it may or may not work in the ontario context but we should be having those conversations so I, i certainly think that you know you know lisa McLeod should be calling up the ministers in other provinces you know calling up the governors in the united states and saying okay who is doing this right and what lessons can ontario learn
0: what about, uh, because I know this government loves to talk about private-public partnerships, uh, there are some, some private sector investors in, uh, that might want to get involved in something like this. I, access to services is, is, a, is a key with any one of these families that I've ever talked with, Mike about making sure that not just identifying what therapy is needed but being able to get in there and that's going back to your idea about the wait list once again uh, but the the cost is prohibitive i mean there's there's a number of different facets to this but so is there is there a need here to to provide more services and to have more more of that kind of investment
2: yeah, I think so, and that's one of the things that we were happy about yesterday is the government saying, okay, well, you know, now you can use this funding for speech therapy and occupational therapy and other needs, and we we think that's a fantastic thing. So absolutely, I think we need to get more service providers on the table. We need more competition, I think, first of all. I think part of the problem we've had here is that in many jurisdictions, there are many areas in Ontario, there's only a single service provider, so they're basically running this thing as a monopoly. So if we can figure out... How to get more competition into the system? How to get more service providers? You know, how to get the insurance companies involved because they can work uh, with us. You know, with us make a more efficient system, better for everyone. So, yeah, I really think we need to expand this uh, this conversation. Get a little bit more competition in, in the system. Get a little bit more oversight as well. I, I do think we need a little bit more regulation, a little bit more auditing, so we make sure that this money is actually flowing to kids and you know not getting eaten up by overhead. So, I think there are things that we can do again and our primary goal should be to come up with an efficient system that, that works for kids
0: but if you're going to do that if you want to attract those dollars uh, to, to increase those services and to increase the, the amount of the number of places that actually offer these services uh, the Ministry of Health's got to be on board and so do the insurance industries have to be on board uh, to give those investors the opportunity and maybe the confidence to say yeah there's there's, there's, there's a long-term play here.
2: Yeah, and I think that's the the big worry for any company who would go into this file is it seems that it, it changes every three to four years. You know, new government or new minister uh, comes along and completely changes the rules. So, yeah, I, I do think uh, you know there are, there are risks here for outside investors, and that's why the government absolutely has to get this right. And I hope they work with the opposition as well. You know, coming up with a plan that you know may not everybody might not love, but everybody can live with. So that way, if there is a change in government government, government, that service providers can be reasonably confident the next government, whether it be NDP or Liberal or someone else, doesn't come in and start mucking with things again. Because you want to have that kind of confidence as an investor that things aren't going to change whenever the government changes.
0: Well, you know, we've talked about uh, families that are living with autism, and, and of course, part of the, the concern there is that uh, especially children with autism uh, like to have routine. Uh, they like to know there's a big consistency. Uh, so do the families when it comes to this. And it's, you're right, every time there's a change of government, all of a sudden one of the first things they want to do is blow this whole thing up and say, okay, now we're going to do it differently
2: yeah that's exactly right, and that was one of the big concerns uh with uh, families who are c- currently- re- receiving services that all the, all of a sudden you know things were blowing up and and these kids and again i can I can speak to this is when the parents you know a lot of kids on the, on the spectrum need uh need routine, so all of a sudden you're taking these kids out of therapy and throwing them uh, into schools that uh simply weren't ready for them you know I think that would be a hard thing for any six or seven year old let alone a, a kid on the spectrum so absolutely we need to get some certainty in here. Uh, we, you know, we need to come up with something that everybody can live with and stop monkeying with this every uh, every few years.
0: Well, just uh, after you and I talked a couple of weeks ago about this, I was in touch with some of the boards of education and some of the trustees, and and that the, there's there's another element of this that I hope the minister steps back and starts paying attention to, is this puts an awful lot of pressure on on the public and, and Catholic school system because they're the ones that are going to have, try to, in many cases, absorb these students. Uh, and they don't have the resources, nor do they have the funding for the resources.
2: Absolutely, and I think that the, the, that was the number one driver of why why we got change yesterday. Is uh, you know, starting April one, a lot of a lot of these kids who aren't in school, or maybe they're in school part time. Would be going into school full time. So we saw across the board teachers and principals and uh uh the teachers' unions and and so on basically say, We don't have the resources for this. We don't have anywhere to uh to put the, these kids. Um, you know, and they're obviously they tend to be uh higher needs as far as teachers and EAs go, and the, those uh resources weren't there. So I think that was the number one thing that's happened. So now we've got this six month pause that gives uh, that gives the Ministry of Education time to work with the principals, uh, to work with the school boards, and try and figure out, uh, you know, a transition plan to get kids who, you know, are uh, able to transition from therapy uh, to the schools and do it on a reasonable time frame instead of just, you know, come April 1, just start uh, throwing these kids in unprepared.
0: Mike, I know this has been exhausting work, but uh, you guys are dedicated to this and you've been consistent about this. And and, and thankfully, the government seems to be listening at this stage. Let's uh, stay in touch and hopefully there's going to be some good news down the road on this.
2: Oh, oh I look forward to it. Take
0: care. We bet. Uh, thanks again for the time. That's uh, Dr. Mike Moffat. Uh, From Western University, but also, of course, the uh, the father with of an autistic child. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The White House has rejected the uh, Democrats' uh, proposal to release any information regarding the Trump-Putin talks. You may remember that oftentimes, uh, when uh, Trump and Putin would meet and have these uh, close to close discussions, uh, staff, except for the uh, interpreters, were told to leave. And at one point, it was reported that Trump actually put uh, the meeting notes and tried to have them destroyed. And obviously, uh, the Adam Schiff's committee wants to have a look at the, some of these things, and the White House is saying no. Uh, and, of course, the Mueller report seems imminent. Of course, we've heard that before. And a couple of other things that are going on is to try to get a read on all of these things. We're pleased to welcome back to the program Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science at uh, Carleton University. How are you doing this morning, Elliot?
3: I'm fine, Bill. How are things? I'm there?
0: great. Listen, I want to I talk about uh, the, the papers and, and the Putin meetings and a few sure. things like that. But first of all, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about what Elijah Cummings wants and know. Um, uh, chairman of the uh, Representative's Oversight Committee, uh, and he wants to talk about uh, Jared Kushner and, uh, and Ivanka Trump uh, and the fact that, uh, I guess, Kushner's lawyer uh, uh, has admitted, I guess, that uh, Kushner is actually using a WhatsApp uh, messaging tool to communicate sensitive or classified information with foreign leaders. Right. Uh, that's, that's against the rules, isn't it?
3: Well, it's interesting. It comes from the lawyer. Yeah. Uh, that's a little detail that has been picked up on, which means that uh, they have lawyered up uh, the, the uh, royal couple. And they've uh, they've taken protective measures in their, in their own uh, in their own interest for the future. So, yes, what we have here is just startling. It turns out that after uh, basically defeating Hillary Clinton, among other things, because of making a huge deal out of her use of a private server uh, when she was Secretary of State, the children, uh, Ivanka and uh, the, remember, they are both. Uh, close advisors to the president, they have highest levels of security uh, clearance, which is a, self-controversial because they didn't get them in the normal way. They apparently have been using um, forms of communication which are not secure. And uh, are you waiting, Bill, for the chance to go up, lock them <laughs> up, lock them up? I, well,
0: wasn't that the chant every time they talked about Hillary's emails? And, and apparently his daughter's doing the exact same thing.
3: Well, there's, there is a difference in scale. Hers are car- occasional and episodic, and uh, this isn't new. We also have charges going back that Renz Priebus and Steve Bannon were doing similar things. And to go back uh, about that same era, Donald Trump is known to have two iPhones, neither of which have the normal encryption on them, apparently, and he uses them uh, in public at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the possibility of his, uh, his own communications being cyber-hacked has been raised gently and has not yet come under uh, judicial scrutiny. But there's a whole pattern here of what can only be called delicious hypocrisy when a, center point, a centerpiece of your campaign is, is featured about Hillary Clinton and her email server, which, by the way, the revered Colin Powell apparently did the Secretary of State to Before her, uh, under Bush, and everybody uh, admires him, did the same thing. So a great deal has been made out of, out of the use of encrypted communications, secure communications. Donald Trump wrote it in part that way to the White House, and now we have this, this apparent contradiction.
0: Well, and uh, and I know that uh, the comments I've seen, at least in, in the watching some of the American news shows here, uh, you know, Representative Chairman or Cummings is uh, going to be diligent about this. I mean, he yes. he seems like a, a a dog with a bone. As soon as he says I want to get this, he he doesn't seem willing to give up. So it's going to be interesting to see just where this goes. It's,
3: it's much broader than that, too, Bill. he's yeah. he's in charge of oversight in the House, and the Democrats have charged that the Republicans, when they were in control of those same committees, when they had the majority just abdicated on the whole issue of oversight, and he's going to see to it that oversight under his watch is, uh, is actually, according to the Constitution, executed properly. So this is only one element of what's likely to be a much broader, well, we know they've, uh, they've also, you now what, 81, 81 sources have been requested for documents. Uh, coming back to that same committee and other committees. So oversight is is really this, the story of the moment.
0: The other element to this, too, and it's uh, very related, of course, is uh, what's going on in the Southern District of New York, and yes. Kushner apparently is under investigation, as is uh, Donald Trump Jr. Uh, nothing to do with Russian collusion, but having to do with financial irregularities with the Trump Foundation.
3: Yes. The, um, the Mueller report, which everybody's waiting for, probably has three different strands to it. Uh, The first is the obvious one. Was there not collusion, but a conspiracy to work with a foreign power by the Trump Trump campaign to influence America's election? That's the core mandate of Mueller. But secondarily, there's the obstruction component, uh, which can arise out of that investigation. Remember, the mandate is matters arising out of that investigation could also uh, come under their purview. Uh, Did he obstruct justice? And we know that he's told the Russians in the Oval Office, yeah, I fired Comey because of the Russian thing. And then thirdly is the whole broad area of financial impropriety. And those he seems to be systematically farming out to other courts. And there's likely to be a lot of those, including, of course, the ones you just alluded to.
0: Let's Talk a little bit about the, the Putin-Russian meetings. We've talked about those in the past, obviously, and it, uh, it's it's it been troubling to an awful lot of people that, uh, that they have these little tête-à-tête's uh, together, and they basically tell everybody to leave the room except for the interpreters, uh, who, of course, are sworn to confidentiality. Uh, but that story of the, a few months ago, of course, that, that mm-hmm. I guess Trump actually collected the, the minutes of that meeting after that and tried to have them destroyed— uh, they're not playing ball here. Now Schiff has written a letter. He's, he's adamant that he wants to get these things. Adam Schiff, of course, that the chairman right. of the committee. Uh, how much power does this committee actually have to be able to, to uh, do this? Or, or is, excuse the bad term, is that a trump card to simply say executive privilege?
3: Yes, both. Uh, Adam Schiff has enormous power because Congress is a co-equal branch of government. He's now in charge of a committee that has subpoena power. Not only can they call witnesses, and put them under oath to testify, but they can subpoena people who don't wish to appear. The uh, the question is whether that would include the president, and there's a ruling that says no, and so far that's not been tested lately. But uh, not only the president, but others can be subpoenaed to come if they choose not to come voluntarily, and that includes documents. So there's broad subpoena power. There's enormous power in these committees if they choose to exercise them, and the Democrats certainly are choosing to exercise them.
0: But if the White House decides to push back right. and this goes to court, uh, right. ultimately all the way to the top, uh, the, to the Supreme Court, uh, do we presuppose that judgment?
3: Well, let's broaden it out again slightly because the Mueller report is coming. Yeah. And the Mueller report is directly to the Attorney General who just got appointed. Uh, this is Trump's Attorney General, William Barr. All of this now will funnel through the Department of Justice. And then ultimately, perhaps to the Supreme Court, both of which are likely to be friendly to the position of Donald Trump, from everything we know publicly.
0: Now we're told, uh, at least by a couple of legal experts, uh, that uh, when the report is released, and you know they say it could be today, it could be in three weeks. We don't know, but it just there seems to be a buzz around Washington these days. So maybe right. it is in a minute that uh, the White House Counsel actually is going to get a look at this before the the public yes. does.
3: Uh, and again, we can back up just slightly. This uh, the Mueller investigation had a lot of highly competent investigators, and he's uh, he's let it be known, and James Comey has an interesting op-ed. But uh, Mueller and and Comey are saying they're not out to get anybody; they're out to get the truth, and they'll pursue it wherever that that takes them. So they they are now in position to um, report to whom? We had the situation before where. There was a temporary attorney general who probably did find out what was going inside the entirely tight-lipped Mueller investigation. The only thing in Washington that doesn't leak uh, is the Mueller investigation. But probably the Trump people know what's going on in there because of Whitaker, and now possibly because of Barr. We aren't sure of that. So they know what's coming, and they are preparing for it. Uh, As you know, politically, the... The Trump administration's been preparing for a very long time, no matter what Mueller says. It's been discounted by Trump so successfully to his followers, and that means the Republican base, not just his base, but the Republican Party, that uh, he's hoping no matter what they say, it's not going to be believed.
0: Are we tempering our expectations about this Mueller report? I'm starting to get the, yeah. the, the read from an awful lot of people that yes. said, look, uh, he said there were way, way too many people, uh, that we're expecting indictments and arrests and people being let out in handcuffs after this report's released, and uh, the, the legal experts are saying that's not going to happen. As a matter of fact, people's probably going to be very disappointed in this and uh, that th- this is really going to be, and I, and I think you've talked to us about this in the past, Elliot, uh, the Mueller report is going to be an accounting of what he's investigated vis-a-vis these crimes and what charges were laid and here's why and what charges weren't laid and here's why. It's 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 not going to be, well, I think this or I think that. That's That's not what this is all about, is it?
3: And ultimately... The mandate could be uh, a very short report. I don't think it will be a short report saying we have not discovered anything that would rise to the level of a a reasonable expectation of a conviction in the court of law uh, for high crimes and misdemeanors or for other aspects. So it could be, I I suspect, um, two things. One is we don't know what's coming. It's entirely possible there's lots of things in there, and I suspect a lot of that is about financial matters. But it could well be, we know, an increasing number, like there's a hundred different contacts that's been publicly known between the Trump campaign and the Russians. So the initial charge may still be there. But beyond that, I've been saying for quite some time, it almost doesn't matter what he says, as long as the material that's in there has already been hived off for uh, examination, not only to the courts, and uh, federal courts, and now there's also... uh, civilian courts, state courts that are involved, but also to the Department of Justice and the FBI. So no matter what comes out, this is not the end. And Indeed, the person who drafted the Mueller mandate has said, remember, uh, in his opinion, this is not going to be the beginning of the end. It's only the end of the beginning.
0: Because apparently with the whole report, redacted or not, can be uh, subpoenaed by the, 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 the House committee, can it not?
3: Well, they can ask, they can... Request that Mueller come and testify. He may he may demand to be behind closed doors in camera, but uh, they can they can go to the source. And the question of can they get the entire report and release it? If William Barr says no, it's not in. It, there's legal reasons you can't do that. Not national interest. Legal reasons you can't release the whole thing. That would be a very sticky constitutional issue, legal issue. But certainly the um, the broad contents of this, if not the All of the detail is likely to come out.
0: By the way, another point I wanted to get your opinion on, Elliot. uh, It was a couple of days ago during one of these scrums on the East uh, Lawn of the White House uh, where the president said, yeah, go ahead, release the report. I want the report released. And everybody said, that's that's not his call. I I know that it's easy for him to say because it makes it look like if he says, yeah, sure. But he knows darn well that it's the attorney general that's going to make that decision, not the president.
3: That's his attorney general that he just appointed who... Out of the blue, earlier, had circulated a, a very lengthy memo exerting a very broad expanse of presidential authority. Uh, so, so a lot of people, call, I think you and I talked about the time, it looked like a job application, yeah. and he got the job. Um, the, the technicality on this, as we're all discovering, is that the report goes first to the attorney general from Mueller, and then the attorney general writes a report, that summer, whatever he chooses. And that, in turn, is what, may, is, is what may go to the public, which may go only to the president.
0: Which means there's uh, an awful lot of people going to be left wanting here.
3: That's possibly the case. It, uh, a great deal depends on how William Barr uh, decides to play this and what, what legal and constitutional powers uh, the Democratic House has, if that turns out to be the case.
0: When there's an illegal argument, and I'm anticipating this is going to happen, where there the parts of this are going to be redacted, I think we can pretty much assume that. Uh, but the, we're told there's going to be an argument from the the White House Counsel here that some of this stuff is going to be executive privileges in, in the interest of national security. Right. Who gets to make that determination as to what is national security and what it? And you know, are we worried about the nation's security or the president's personal security?
3: Very good question, Bill. And not clear as to how to answer that. Ultimately, I suspect it would be a Supreme Court decision uh, down the line. But remember the timeline we're talking about. We have a situation now where five out of six of the closest confidants to the president have been found guilty, indicted and found guilty, <laughs> and uh, are going to jail. And we also have a situation where there's increasing evidence that there's possible conspiracy. Uh, you know, Manafort delivers to the Russian agent internal Polling data, so lots and lots of, and then all this financial things. But look where we are. We're talking about 2020. We're talking about an election which is looming, not yet here. I, it certainly looks as if, unless there's a real bombshell that comes out, something justiciable, something that rises to the level of high crimes and misdemeanors, that this will carry over into the election, possibly through the election, and possibly through the re election of the president. Before a lot of these legal implications finally hit home, which would be a very, uh, uh, it would be quite a quite a situation where the sitting president, having just been reelected, which I think is a very high possibility, uh, if the if the economy holds and if the legal issues don't catch up with him immediately, then I think his chances of being reelected are are quite high. So then we would be in a situation of 2021 20, or so where all of this finally comes to a head.
0: Listen, i got about a minute left. You mentioned the the reference uh, to the the Comey uh, op-ed piece that was in the New York Times. Uh, Interesting read, uh, saying he didn't think the president should be uh, impeached, although he doesn't think he's capable of holding the job or qualified for it. But the rationale bothered me, and I wanted you to comment on this. He doesn't want him impeached because he's afraid of the rebellion that might happen from those that are supporters of him.
3: Uh, Kind of a twisted logic there. And uh, Yes, he said two things in there uh, apart from that. First is he said... The important thing here is that the whole world see that there's a judicial system in America that works, and that the impartiality of the law is the beating heart of America. And that's his first point. His final point, however, is uh, he wants an election to determine this, to show that people are united, as he said, something by very important, the belief that the president of the United States cannot be a chronic liar who repeatedly attacks the rule of law, After that, we can get back to policy disagreements. So, these two very uh, important points by Comey, but we have to remember that James Comey probably delivered the White House to Donald Trump by intervening Mm -hmm. over what the issue of (laughs) of what we started this conversation uh, over emails on the Hillary Clinton server, and he did that just before the election, which is a strong violation of of uh, FBI protocol. So, uh, there we have James Comey now weighing back in saying. Well, just let the system
0: work. Uh, if if it has a hasn't worked for the last little while, it doesn't seem to. Well, we'll see what happens. Elliot, uh, we're out of time this time around, but I'm sure we'll have lots more to talk about next week. Thanks Looking so much for this. To it. Take care, Elliot Tepper, of course, uh, from Carleton University. <sharp inhale>